0: Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision.
1: Some conversation around the idea that Aussies increasingly are motivated by what we feel rather than how things objectively are. And while so many seem to be lurching around promoting all sorts of ideological positions based on feelings... Christians are a little different. As Christian believers, we follow a leader that we call Lord, who declares he is the truth. And his truth speaks powerfully inconvenient truths to us that radically change our preferences, that are usually based on our feelings. We live in an age of shifting cultural sands. So our discussion today around how to stand firm on a foundation while things seem to be shifting around us. Our special guest today, Dr. Richard Schumacher, who is a research fellow at the Center for Public Christianity. He's director at the Arthur Jeffrey Center for the Study of Islam at the Melbourne School of Theology. And he's also Academic Director of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries in Understanding and Answering Islam. So Richard Schumacher, a special welcome along to twenty twenty.
0: Oh, I'm very great pleasure to be here, Neil. Thanks for
1: having me. Uh, let me just acknowledge something we just heard in the news, Richard, and uh, that is that your colleagues at the Centre for Public Christianity uh, just uh, awarded the Australian Christian Book of the Year for for the Love of God. And uh, no doubt, while you're not, your name doesn't appear on there. It's uh, <laughs> these are your colleagues. So uh, let me just make the first congratulations uh, to you and the team at at CPX.
0: Yeah, thank you, Neil. It's a, again great pleasure, it's a great honor to be awarded that. Um I was only partly involved in the background with that project and it's um part of a bigger project too, the for the love of god, which is connected to the documentary movie. And this is it's not not exactly the companion book, but it's, it's sort of the the details, if you like, if you want to go deeper on any of those issues, that's what this book is about. It's a great book, so I highly recommend it to people. And I can do that because I wasn't one of the authors, but it's certainly well worthy of the of the award.
1: Well, the primary author, Natasha Moore, is scheduled for a segment on 2020 in the coming week or so. I'll have to check on the exact date, but uh, look forward to some more discussion around that book and some other things that Natasha's been writing as well. Hey, we're talking about this particular topic today. Uh, we'll talk feelings. We'll talk facts. We'll talk objectivity. Uh, facts and objectivity these days, Richard. These seem to be dated. Uh, it's old fashioned to rely on facts. Old fashioned to rely on objectivity. Uh, this is the way the world seems to be going.
0: I think that's right, Neil. Uh, certainly in the West, that's true in Western culture. Um, I like the way you introduced it in your um, in, in the lead into the show. The um, it really is a shift. I, th- I actually think people still believe that some things are true, but the shift is away from um, institutions defining what's true or philosophy defining what's true or religions defining what's true or, God forbid, God <laughs> defining what's true. It's very much each individual defines what's true for themselves, but and it's their feelings that tell them that too. It doesn't really have to match up with objective reality Uh, and I think that is a trend in fact I was also listening to the previous segment you had Um, the discussions around gender and sexuality at the moment are a great example of that what you're seeing is people deciding to identify as whatever they like it doesn't matter what their body is doesn't matter what the genetics say if I want to define myself and identify as a male or a female, I can do that because my feelings are the things that tell me what's true rather than objective facts or medical facts.
1: Well, let's spend a few moments talking about who defines what's true. You might have your own thoughts on uh, some of the alternatives because as Christians and uh, lots of our listeners today uh, will say, hey, I'm a Christian and I know that you know Jesus said, I am the truth. Uh, so we've got this idea that God is true, and sometimes we get a bit confused how that actually translates into our lives. But, uh, but this idea of who defines what's true, uh, there's all sorts of uh, different ways that people are trying to say what's true, but uh, none of those are as strong as the foundation that we seem to have when we acknowledge a transcendent God. Give us some idea about how other people are sort of defining what's true here, Richard.
0: Yeah, right. So, very much the two, the two, two ends of the spectrum, if you like, are there are people who say no, there is an objective truth. Truth, there is something there that makes things true. It's not up to me. Um, and then there are people who are saying no, no, it's whatever. I truth is a made up thing. It's a human thing. It's a thing of the mind, if you like. It's a construct. Um, and then I get to def- define it myself. If things make sense to me, if it all fits nicely in my head then that's what truth is. There's no such thing as an objective out there truth. They're the sort of main two competing worldviews that we have. And one of the really interesting things you're seeing at the moment is um, perhaps environment, the discussion about environments a good example where um, in the past people would have said even science is objectively true. Now people are saying, well, no, we can't trust science anymore. Science is made by or is done by and they're biased and they're backed by money one side or another. They're politically motivated. So we can't trust anything objective. We can't trust science. Um, so that's, they're the sort of two competing things that we've got at the moment. People just deciding, well, look, it's it's all too hard. is oh, just what's true for me. And then people trying to do this, the hard work, if you like, of trying to match your beliefs with reality, with external reality. And so- you're right. The traditional worldview was objective and we've had this big shift so the subject
1: And I imagine that some of this, or perhaps all of it, is caused by the fact that we live in an information age and there is so much information that seems to water down what we thought was objective truth before, or the truth that most people seem to hold to because there was this uh, worldview or social imaginary, the way that people talk about the things that are true. Uh, There's been a watering down because now there's so many more choices to have because we have so much access to uh, such a vibrant lot of information Uh, That's absolutely
0: correct, there is vast vast amounts of information being thrown at us and with the rise of social media, most people these days don't get their information from teachers or from uh, the news like the old school news they're getting it from Facebook and it's coming down from any number of sources, they don't really know where it's coming from Some are trustworthy, some are not. Everyone has an opinion. And so we're in this situation where you really, how do you know who to listen to? So you can understand the confusion around truth, uh, particularly when at the same time you have a very, very deep distrust of the media or an increasing distrust of the media. Terms like fake news um, is a real thing where people only trust particular voices and not others and yeah we're very very confused about who to listen to and there are so many voices yelling at us so you can understand the the sort of pressure or the confusion or the the desire to retreat out and just say look it's all too hard.
1: Is it an optimistic thing to think that maybe another search for truth has begun and uh, that as people claim a particular type of truth that that actually may be a part of the journey that they're on to discover the sort of truth that Christians will say is our objective truth. Do you think there's a search that's on, or is or are people just uh, led by their feelings and they're going to they're going to fight to the death for the for the truth that they think is true? Right. Well, look, I hope so, Neil. I hope that's the thing. And I, my hunch is that's where it'll go because.
0: Um, it's not livable, like you have to live in a real world. And so at the end of the day, sometimes you're gonna run up against brute reality and it's gonna shock you, it's gonna force you to conform to it rather than the other way around. And so I think you can't just live in your own dream world um, and make life work. And so you're going to get clashes. And so particularly at the moment where the our own world is extreme, like this extreme trust of I just decide my own world. Well, that's not going to work. That's going to create chaos. It's not going to create an ordered, flourishing society. It's going to create a chaotic... In fact, it's creating what you're seeing now, a society where people are fighting, they're angry... They're enraged about all things. People put forth an opinion and no no one engages with it. They just yell at it and they scream at it and they call people names. That's where it's headed. And you can't work. uh, That doesn't work. It doesn't work in the long run. And so I do think you're going to see a bit of a pushback and you're seeing it around the place. You're getting sort of the artist writing a letter recently saying, actually, were you ideas for debate, and we do need to actually make a case for things, and things can be true. So I think think there is that trend of things coming back. And here's here's another really interesting thing. Just a little clue is that whatever you think of the uh, of the Black Lives Matter movement or the Me Too movements, um, and they're certainly very political. The even in that, there's a little clue in that people still believe in objective truth. People are saying, no, black lives really do matter. They're objectively valuable. Treatment of women really, it really does matter if women are treated badly, if women are abused, if women are sexually attacked. That really does matter. And people would say that matters objectively. So people haven't completely let go of objective truth. So there's still room to maneuver there. For people like Christians who believe in objective truth, you can can go there and say, well, hang on, you do believe that some things are true, don't you? So I actually think that what's happened is we're not in a post-truth world. We're just in a world where the truths are shrinking right down. People only care about a few objective truths. Um, but I think for, that, for, for Christians, there's a, a pathway to open the door to, well, maybe there are more objective truths. Or even where did you get that objective truth? Why do you think women matter? Why do you think um, black lives or oppressed people matter? Where do you get that morality from? And that opens up a, a bigger conversation about objective morality. <laughs>
1: Sometimes it takes a bit of humility to ask those sorts of questions rather than to venture your own dogmatic opinion. I wonder whether you've got any thoughts here on on how you best... Uh, in engage in those sorts of conversations because sometimes you can say well here am I I'm a Christian and hey I've got the objective truth here that there is a God in heaven uh that that his truth remains uh, the strongest truth ever and of course uh, people are, are, are you know, people talk about post-truth they talk about being post-christian too so is there a is there a good way to engage in these conversations not being quite so dogmatic but helping people to discover this idea of a of a a truth of the person that we follow? Oh, I think there is, Neil. <laughs> and, I, and I think you're
0: right. Humility is certainly one of the clues. Um, tone matters very, very much. It's 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 very hard to persuade people of things when your approach is, well, you're just wrong. That just turns into a na na ni na da throwing grenades at each other. So that's not a helpful approach. But I think it's important to show people the... Um, show people truth as well as say, I am speaking the truth. So here's one little suggestion, I think. And I think this is a, an important one for any Christian listeners. Um, like I said before, there's, there are still some truths that our culture values. We've jettisoned many objective truths, but we've clung on to a few. And let, let's uh, the one I mentioned before about valuing and caring for women and not wanting to be abusive or um, certainly treating women as sexual objects, Um, I think Christians would want to say, well, that's we totally are on board with that. We've been saying that for years. Mm, (laughs) We we value women and we are against all forms of abuse. Um, And I think if we Show that if, our, if Christian communities are communities where that is the lived experience, where people can work in, walk into a church and see that women are treated better here than I can see anywhere else, um, then that gives you a voice to say, well, why is that? Um, and then you can speak wider truths and we can say, well, why do we value women in the way we do? Well, it's because they're created in the image of God and Jesus tells us the truth about this and, and away you go. But I think uh, at the very least... In, in the areas of objective truth that people still care about, we need to be trustworthy in that. Because I think, I actually think what we're in is not so much a post-truth culture, we're in a post-trust culture. No one trusts anyone to be telling them the truth anymore. No one trusts the media. No one trusts the government. No one trusts churches. And so how you generate trust is by being known as trustworthy. Trustworthy in the things that matter Um, and then be a trustworthy speaker. So I think you're right with humility, but it's also about trust. It's about being a trustworthy person um, and then you're able to speak because people will trust what you say. A biblical perspective on life, culture and
1: current events.
0: This is 2020 on Vision Christian Radio.
1: Well, our special guest this hour is Dr. Richard Schumach, who is a research fellow at the Centre for Public Christianity. We're talking about a post-truth or post-trust style of culture that we might find ourselves in. And uh, that's a challenge for us as Christian believers. I just want to say, talk back line open on 1-800-316-316 and leave a note along with your vote on our Facebook poll today. Does a post-truth culture strengthen or weaken our Christian expectation for the future? Richard, before we take any calls and uh, comments, let's talk a little bit about Jesus here because uh, while some will think that if Christianity is outdated, uh, Jesus is outdated, we're talking about a a leader from 2,000 years ago, Um, but Jesus as a model uh, here for truth is where Christians uh, put their faith. Uh, So let's talk about Jesus as a model for a few moments. What's so significant here?
0: Right. Well, as you mentioned, again, in your introduction, um, Christians obviously follow Jesus. But uh, as you said, Jesus claimed to be the truth. I am the way and the truth and the life. Uh, He claimed to define truth. He claimed to speak truth. Um, But even then, it was really interesting when you see the way he operated in his years on Earth, in his few short years of ministry. He wasn't coming and uh, whenever he encountered anyone, Any individual, he didn't just sort of slam them with the truth. I know truth and you need to shut up and listen. Um, Usually he would allow people to come to him with questions and challenges and then he would respond to their particular, the truths that they were interested in. Now, it doesn't mean he was soft on truth. He spoke very clear truths. A great example is the the Samaritan woman at the well where um, Jesus starts with an offer of hospitality, really. "Let's, Let's sit down and drink. Let's talk. And then she starts uh, up a conversation really about worship. Um, and then he presses carefully um, but firmly on issues, the, the, the difficult issues in her life, which were to do with intimacy and her trying to find meaning in various relationships. So it went deep very quickly. But it was also very, very um, targeted, if you like. So he was dealing with the particular truths that really mattered to that woman and were central to her life. And he spoke penetratingly but also gently um, and within that context of knowing again it's about trust he built trust and you saw that again and again he connects with people he treats them as people and he speaks targeted truth careful truth in the things that matter to them um, the other big picture thing is um, he spent three years building trust if you like he called people to follow him and he showed them that what he was talking about was true he didn't just tell them hey this is true he showed them through his miracles, he showed them through his persistent love of them, and then ultimately he showed them on the cross, Um, both, again, as an act of love, but also as an act of redemption and um, as an act of evidence for who he was. So, yeah, again, truth and trust are married really, really tightly in Jesus' life, and and that's a brilliant model for us. If you want to be able to speak truth, then you need to do it in love, in trust.
1: (laughs) Sometimes we think about truth and we think that we're talking only on an intellectual plane, Uh, you know, uh, that I've got the better answers to the bigger questions than you've got. Uh, But even as I hear you talking about Jesus there as modelling what truth is, uh, modelling that servant-hearted uh, wanting the best for his followers, uh, modelling even uh, ex- suffering the pain of going to the cross. There's there's something deeper than just an intellectual argument about what things are true and what things are false. Uh, truth here actually is all-encompassing. What are your thoughts around that, Richard?
0: Yeah, absolutely. No one, especially Christians, should think that... Um, Truth is about winning arguments, or truth is trying to establish the sort of uh, the higher ground philosophically. Uh, and there's a tempt, particularly for someone like me, whose area is apologetics and philosophy. That's my training. Um, I'm always tempted to want to sort of win the argument, um, but no, that's you're exactly right. Truth, certainly the truth that Jesus was talking about, is um, the truth that you are made by God, you are loved by God and you will find um, true love, true fulfillment, true flourishing in that relationship with God. And the test, if you like, for truth that Jesus gave, it was really interesting. He said, um, one of my favorite quotes, it's a bit sort of unusual, it's not a common one, but Jesus um, says, truth is proved right by her children, or wisdom is proved correct by her children. Um, The idea being that this is not about winning arguments, this is about the fruitfulness that comes. And so... um, another verse in the bible says taste and see that the lord is good Um, that's what truth is about truth is not about winning arguments truth is about knowing how things really are in the world what am i really built for why why am i this moral being why do i have this sense of eternity why why is love at the center of things why is relational things and the christian message says well that's because that's all from god that's what god is like um but you don't draw people into that by arguing, you say come and taste it, come and see that this is the truth taste and see that the Lord is good
1: So the truth isn't just intellectual, you can experience the truth and uh, that takes us into all sorts of uh, deeper ways of thinking about our life and and about how to you know, uh, found ourselves on the solid rock rather than on the shifting sands. This is uh, an important thing. Is it's not just uh, our intellect; it's also our experience. Hey, uh, there's. Uh, let me just uh, touch on something here. Um, uh, our Facebook question today: Does a post-truth culture strengthen or weaken? our Christian expectation for the future. And uh, this leads us into uh, the thought about, you know, if we're feeling like this post-truth world weakens our Christian expectation, then what's being strengthened? And we might look at the idea of uh, the strengthening of religious groups like Islam or of socialism around the world. What are your thoughts here on who's getting strengthened and who's getting weakened in a (laughs) post-truth world?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, Well, (laughs) But there's two two sides to that, two elements to that. One is just the shape of contemporary culture. And I think, I think what everyone agrees on, uh, Christian, not Christian, um, is that our culture is becoming increasingly divided, increasingly antagonistic, increasingly, as I've been talking about, uh, distrustful of each other. Mm-hmm. People are in their tribes, they're pecking at each other. Social media is nasty if anyone ever spends time on it. Um, so I think... Things at that level, we're seeing some really serious consequences of being in a post-truth, post-trust culture. I think that's real. Um, now, how does faith interact with that or what, what does that do to um, religion, if you like? Uh, well, the first thing I I'd, I'd want to say, and I'm, I think if I, if I remember correctly, I think I'm quoting G.K. Chesterton here. He said that when people stop believing in God, it doesn't mean that they'll believe nothing it means they'll believe anything. So if you let go of truth, you'll still believe things, but they're just going to be lies and they're going to be, and lies lead to destruction. That was his argument. And so, yes, what we're seeing at the moment is a vacuum of truth and and it's getting worse. People still have remnants. We talk in Australia about a remnant of a Christian culture. And I think that's true. We have a remnant Christian morality, but it's getting weaker and weaker all the time. And, uh, truth <laughs> vacuums aren't going to stay like that very long. People will step up, because as the chaos increases, other ideologies will step in and say, well, we can provide an answer to the chaos. So that ideology will come in the form of different isms. It might be a communism. It might be Islam or other uh, ideological religions like that. And they will step into the into the gap. Um, so for Christians, uh, I guess the two things I want to say is, at a personal level... Um, Watching this chaos affirms my belief. I think, wow, you've let let go of, this is reminding me of the Garden of of Eden or um, various times in the the history of Israel in the Old Testament where when you let go of God's laws, this is what happens. It's like the choice between blessings and curses that you see uh, for the people of Israel. If you let go of the truth, you're going to end up with chaos. And that totally affirms that, yeah, Christianity is so much better away.
1: Uh, Tell us just a little bit about your new book as we get this segment underway. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Neil. Yeah, the book's called Jesus Through Muslim
0: Eyes, uh, and it's it, it's a sort of a walk through the history of how um, Islam has handled Jesus or dealt with Jesus down through the years. So it starts with what the Quran says about Jesus, and then what the early Muslim scholars and traditions said about Jesus, and then what later Muslim. There was, there was a really interesting uh, sort of a thread of devotion, interestingly, to Jesus, um, not as God, but uh, a sort of a, as a model of what it is to be a religious person that you see weaving through Islamic history as well. So I sort of start there, and then I just come back and say, well, um, is that the true Jesus? Is the Jesus that you run into in Islam and within the Islamic sources the the, the true Jesus? It's really a book written for, uh, for Muslims to read and to think about um, whether the Jesus of the Bible... Um, or the Jesus of the Quran is the true Jesus.
1: Okay, and uh, it's called Jesus Through Muslim Eyes. And uh, you would include Islam in this idea of post-truth culture because it's got a long history, about uh, 1,600 or so years. Uh, How does Islam fit into that idea that we're talking about today in comparison to Jesus as the truth? Right, well, Islam
0: is certainly not post-truth, Islam, like Christianity and like most traditional religions, is very strongly saying we have the objective truth as well. Um, and so, again, I think when you have a vacuum of objective truth, um, that's, that vacuum won't last very long. Society won't function with a vacuum of objective truth, with a vacuum of objective morality, without having any strong sense of what's right, what's wrong. Um, what we should do in any situation. And people will step in. Religions will step in. Ideologies will step in. And certainly Islam is very keen to step in um, with a very strong legal legal framework as well for how you uh, hear a whole bunch of objective truths, and they should be enforced on people. Um,
1: uh, that's an interesting point you're making there when you say when the truth is enforced on people, uh, that's when you've got to ask, is this truly an objective truth? Uh, these people are trying to force their ideology onto us. And uh, we might think as Christian believers, there's all these rising ideologies all around and uh, we can feel threatened in that. We might know that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. But uh, somehow or other, we uh, tend to then uh, retreat. Uh, we tend to hold back because these other truths are rising. And and I don't feel equipped to be able to address those. And I guess that's a part of how we ought to be thinking about, about strengthening our a way of addressing those sorts of things.
0: Yeah, I agree. Uh, truth shouldn't need to be enforced because if it's true. Uh, like I said before, wisdom is proved right by its children. Truth doesn't need to be defended as truth. Um, if it is the truth, it will stand for itself. And so you point to truth, you show people truth, you live truth, you can't enforce those truths on people. If people want to believe lies, um, then without torturing them or brainwashing them, you're not going to be able to persuade them out of it. So, yeah, you shouldn't try and enforce true things on people. But we should be always speaking truth, living truth, pointing people to be truth, pr- to, to the truth, promoting the truth, absolutely. And, and as Christians, I think you're right. In a post-truth culture where um, people don't want to hear about objective truths and when they're getting angry when you say i'm angry at you and there are personal attacks then it's a costly thing actually to be a truth speaker um and, and people will know that from families and generally when i think about how you operate in society i think how does it work in a family um and if you're a parent i'm a parent of um four young men mm-hmm. um there are times where they're willing to hear truth there are other times when there are truths they weren't all willing to hear um, and so, yeah, you need to be bold at times in sharing truth and it can be a costly thing. Um, probably one other thing to say about that, when Christians speak out about truths, we need to be uh, careful about which truths we want to major on. So again, if I think about my family, I might want to say to my, to my kids, uh, well, that's a silly choice, a silly choice to jump off that rock, off that cliff. Um, but a more important truth for them to know is that I love them. And so same thing for Christians. We want to be bold. We don't want to be stepping back. Now is not a time to step back. It's a time to step forward and declare truths and be truth speakers. But we need to focus on the important truths, which um, will not be trying to moralize our society. But the important truth is you're made by God, you're loved by God, you're valued by God, you're redeemed by God.
1: Well, that's a fabulous way to look at how you can uh, certainly make an application of that truth. Uh, Start with God's love at the start, and uh, and then as you're talking through issues, addressing morality, addressing ideology, those things can come as a result of, uh, first of all, setting a context for who God is. Hey, on our Facebook question today, the question asks, Does a post-truth culture strengthen or weaken our Christian expectation for the future? And uh, that question, uh, you know, we're speaking into that uh, in the way that you're responding to fabulous uh, uh, responses here, Richard. At the present time, our listeners uh, who voted on that poll, 79% are saying uh, the post-truth culture strengthens our expectation for the future. 21% say weaken. So uh, I'm not sure what you think about that, but it sounds to me like a, a lot of listeners are saying, well, you know, we're not afraid of the post-truth culture. We think it's going to strengthen our expectation for the future. What are your thoughts there? Because, you know, when we talk about being in retreat, uh, when we talk about there's a cost to speaking into these things, uh, there's an awful lot of listeners saying, hang on, this is going to strengthen the future.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, obviously it depends about strengthening it in which ways, in what ways. So I think um, it will be a difficult, it's already a difficult time to live through. So I think it's weakening the bonds in our society. Um, and that's a really bad thing. I, I just, I look back, I'm, I'm not that old. I'm 50-ish. And um, I sort of think it felt like people trusted each other more in the past. It felt like people were not as angry. The roads were not an aggressive place to be. Um we didn't have social media, but people seem to argue less, and people seem to take pot shots less. So I think, in some ways, it's a difficult thing. But, um, but yeah, I think there's it's a in terms of my faith, I'm absolutely convinced that now is a time where truth can absolutely shine. Uh, the Bible talks about Christians being um, sitting on a hill or lights, salt. The Christian community will stand out in amazing and unique ways. This will be a place where, um, well, for a start, we'll value truth and we'll long for truth, but we'll also be a place where people are committed to building bonds and not committed to separation. Um, So I think it's an amazing opportunity. It affirms my beliefs are true, but also it offers really great opportunities to be the trustworthy people, the people who you can trust uh, to look after your kids. Now, I realise there's a track record... um, that's and we're going back to the book the book that could that um the for the love of god book that won the uh the christian book of the year award that deals with well how do you answer the challenge because institutions are not trusted and i think that's a true thing that religious institutions are not trusted anymore but i think local churches local relationships with real christians it's a really common thing i hear it all the time oh you're different the the child abuse things, that's the church, that's bad. But you're different. You're a, you're a real Christian or something. And I think anywhere there are those real Christians where, that have real relationships with genuine people and are trustworthy, then that's going to open amazing opportunities,
1: I think. Carolyn says on our Facebook page where she's responded to the poll, Carolyn says, God's truth is the only foundation upon which we can build our lives upon because God's truth will stand when the storms of life come against us and won't change to suit sin or ideologies. Uh, there's something special in there. And of course, uh, Jesus' illustration of building your life on the rock and not on the sand that will shift and uh, won't be a firm foundation. There's a certain sense in which uh, we've got to be a people who trust God and knowing that his truth is trustworthy. And I wonder whether you've got any thoughts around whether typical Christians might actually have that sort of strength of character to say, I can rely on God's truth. Yeah, well,
0: strength of character, I wonder whether that's quite how i put put um I love the scene where, because uh, when Jesus came and spoke those words of truth, and I totally agree that obviously God's truth is the only reliable truth. He's the only one that knows all truth. He's the only one that is always a truth speaker. And he's also the only one who loves us enough to show us the right way. So that, that is absolutely true. But when Jesus came, speaking God's words of truth, got to this point where he'd said enough, as you said earlier, inconvenient truths, truths that challenged people to conform their lives to the truth in ways that they didn't want to do because they were happy with um, their choices as it was. They didn't want, didn't want they wanted a Messiah, but not one that was going to make them change their lifestyle. No, thank you very much got to the point where there was only a handful left, and Jesus said, do you want to go as well? And they said, well, where else are we going to go? You've got the words of eternal life. Um, and at that point, I'm not sure that it's strength of character, I just think it's, it's this realisation, almost a desperation, thinking, here are all the options we've got out there. Um, and there are, there are many options. You can be an atheist, you can be a Buddhist, you can be a Hindu, you can be a, an Islamist, you can be a... Um, Communist many ideologies, but um, but yeah, Christians are the ones who say, "No, these are the words of eternal life i 've got nowhere else to go so it 's a it 's a conviction it 's a desperation it 's a clinging on to truth, um, and that can be a challenge absolutely, and it can take courage, um, but it really does come out of. Uh, Jesus' words are beautiful and they're life-giving and they're redeeming. Um, and so if you have that realisation, then um, where else would you go? That's sort of the way I think about it.
1: Interesting, isn't it, the way that we think about how we apply this uh, truth to our lives. And uh, for a lot of people, they're only thinking at a personal level, uh, you know, how this affects me. And, you know, they might look at the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7, and say there's lots of personal applications of how you get the person who says he's the truth uh, applying his life into my life and a wonderful way to look at it. Then you've got, uh, you know, a reflection on the bigger applications of truth and we might talk about national levels and the application, right. say, of the Ten Commandments uh, in the mm-hmm. way that you would build a nation. Uh, there's different levels here and, and sometimes we're, we're talking about different uh, different dimensions to how this truth is applied. Sometimes just personal, sometimes others are thinking on a bigger plane. I think we probably talk on this program more about a bigger plane than the personal application, although that's not unimportant. What are your thoughts for the for the ways that truth is applied when you say this is who Jesus says he is and it applies at all these different levels? Yeah, right. Uh let me give you a slogan. I don't
0: know if I made it up or not, but <laughs> truth, truth is for sharing. Truth is not just for me. It's like, any, it's like any good thing I have. It's not just given for me to indulge myself in. If I know a beautiful truth about the world, I want to share it with people. If I discover a beautiful waterfall or a, um, we, we live near the bush, a beautiful bushwalk, I want to share that with people. Um, And I think truth is for sharing. It's never a private thing. It's also a communal thing in the sense that most of the things I believe, most of the truths I know are because other people have shared them with me. The truths we know about Jesus are because the disciples shared them with us, the scriptural truths. um, I have teachers who I'm indebted to so many things. So, yeah, of course, knowledge is a shared thing, and we do it in community. And this is one of the tragedies of a post-trust culture, is we don't trust what people are sharing with us anymore. Uh, and that's a tragedy because the way we come to know truth is we do it together. And I think one of the huge shifts, and, and again, we just need to model it, um, is going away from this adversarial um, way that people treat knowledge at the moment, whatever the pub- the public issue is, the way in the public square people talk about knowledge, it's always adversarial. The media will only, um, I mean, this, Charlotte, this is a rare exception, Where you don't want to just pick two sides and have them fighting each other. That's Q&A on ABC. Everyone just wants two sides fighting, but that's not a great way to find knowledge. The way you find knowledge is consensually and sharing it, doing it with generosity, listening carefully, digging deeply into it. Um, And that's, I think, the thing that we need to bring to the contemporary wider Australian culture is modelling a way of doing truth that is consensual, that's social, that's in community. Um, Again, it's the way you do it in a family. You don't want to promote the discussion about important things with fighting. How do you do it? Well, you sit down and you do it over a meal and you can, speak. you can speak passionately and vibrantly about it, but you do it in the sense of we're doing this together. And so I think, yes, truth is a social thing. It's a public thing, um, but it's a shared thing. It's not an adversarial thing.
1: Well, modern media loves the adversarial approach. As you say, you know, you get the Q&A argument. And uh, so there's a love for one ideology against another ideology, and that might make for good ratings because it can be entertaining when you listen to what people are saying. So modern media loves that. But as you're saying, uh, there's a certain sense in which uh, as Christian believers – Um, We're not necessarily looking for the adversarial approach, but no doubt there is a way that we need to respond here with the idea of contending in the marketplace, which we might say is a biblical foundation as well. Uh, The idea of contending, of putting yourself forward, and as you say, sometimes it's going to cost you, uh, but there is a certain sense in contending here is going to be important. Absolutely, you can get into some serious contention
0: in your family. <laughs> you can have heated discussions. Not, a, I'm not at all against contention. Again, I'm a professional philosopher. My, I've built my life on building argument, formal arguments, contentious arguments with people. Absolutely not against contention, but it must be done inside a, a wider context, which is trusting, caring, dare I say, loving relationship. Um, I've got a friend. He's a He was a great uh, sort of door-to-door. He used to do door-to-door work for um, a council, actually. Uh, He was implementing council programs at a local council. And one of the things he learned was, and I still remember this, another useful slogan. He says, you can tell an Australian anything if you can get them to laugh. Mm. Um, Meaning you can be sort of piercing into the, the sort of deepest, darkest centers of their of their life and you can challenge them profoundly, but if you can get them to laugh with you. His point is, um, if, if they know you're on their side, if they're trusting you, if they're enjoying their time with you, then you can say anything. So yeah, not at all against contending. Contention is critical. You saw Jesus doing that all the time. But again, the context has to be not out of trying to win or defeat you, but out of trying to share truth with you because I care for you. And people see that. People know if they're loved.
1: So in a post-trust world, one of the elements that Christian believers need to be very, very firm on is the idea that winning trust is important because winning trust means that your truth will have some airing and uh, people will be more interested in your truth if they know that they can trust. And do you know uh, this idea that that post-trust... Uh, not only is about truth, and as we mentioned a little earlier, uh, you know, post church uh, people talk about, but even in a day when you take that another step further, the idea of post politics, uh, people don't trust politicians at any level because they don't they don't have any trust at all uh, for politicians. Just uh, we only got a couple of minutes left for our mm-hmm. conversation here, but uh, when we're talking about uh, politics, we're talking about church. Uh, the idea that there is a a lack of trust. Uh, Let's talk politics just briefly because when you've got politicians on both sides of an equation, say left and right, none none of them are uh, pro-God, pro-Christian, so all you've got is... Uh, ideologies uh, against one another. What do, What are your thoughts here because this post-politics world and this is probably another hour long conversation which we don't have time for but, but, <laughs> right. but Richard this just complicates just how tough it is when you're talking about how do you understand the truth because the truth is not being talked about or debated even at our national levels.
0: Yeah Neil, I think you're right and and you're certainly right it's a minefield that would take um, <laughs> many long discussions to try and weave our way through it but but i think the 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 thing that is really noticeable at the moment is is a i mean i think there are some excellent politicians some friends of mine i know believers in parliament christian believers in parliament who are in the background trying to contribute where they can but i think you're right Uh, politics is mirroring what you're seeing in the rest of society it's becoming more and more polarized whether it's left or right or other ideologies, it's becoming more and more ideological, less and less consensus, less and less centrist, if that's the right word. Um, and I think absolutely the challenge is going to be how will we, um, how will we do return to consensus in the way that we a, and care and um, again a love context. And I know it seems a bit idea, a bit utopian the idea that we might expect our politicians to frame things in love. Um, but yeah, I think. We sort of tend to, my personal theory is you sort of get the politicians you deserve in a sense that I think politics reflects the wider culture more than the other way around. And so it'll take a while, I think, for the ship to turn in politics and for the adversarial nature, the divisive nature to, to be turned away from. Um, but certainly that's a real challenge that we have at the moment. How do we trust politicians when it's so ideological and so... Um, Polarised at the moment. It's a very difficult time.
1: Well, Please pray
0: for the Christians who are
1: there. <laughs> yes, and uh, and to consider yourself your own political engagement, uh, which whether wow. it's actually standing in a seat and being a right. candidate, well, for some people and uh, probably very few, that will be their their focus. But certainly the support of those uh, Christian candidates and those Christian parliamentarians who will make a stand for truth that's going to be an important uh, powerful way that you can make a contribution to hey we have run out of time richard but um you know the facebook question today does a post-truth culture strengthen or weaken our christian expectation for the future Uh, the uh, the uh, statistics as they are 76 percent say strengthen and 24 percent say Weaken and uh, those numbers will continue to climb uh, uh, over the hours ahead. Uh, Dr. Richard Schumack has been our guest. He's a research fellow at the Centre for Public Christianity. We did mention his latest book, and uh, it's Jesus through Muslim Eyes. Uh, Jesus. It's a, a book on Jesus in Islam and discussion with, uh, and based on a discussion that Richard had with a a journalist in the UK. Uh, But uh, Richard, just great getting your insights today. Let me point people to publicchristianity.org. That's the website for the Centre for Public Christianity, publicchristianity.org. And uh, you might also check out the fact that the Centre for Public Christianity's book, for the Love of God, which is written by Natasha Moore, uh, with input there from John Dixon and Simon Smart and Justine Toe. Uh, it's won the uh, Christian Book of the Year Award. And uh, great to have you on, Richard, to, to talk about you know that and this issue of truth, just a powerful concept, powerful insights. Thank you so much for taking some time to share these thoughts with us today on 2020.
0: Absolute pleasure, Neil. Good to be with you.